There are a lot of things to be thankful for in life. We have many blessings. This morning I am thankful for grace because they gave me water again, even after last week. I was kind of expecting a sippy cup. If you missed last week, um, you can find it, you can find sermons from our church on YouTube on a regular basis. Um, I want to say hello to, uh, to those of you who are out, in, uh, out there in live stream land. I know there are some folks who have contacted us from Tennessee. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Hope that you're enjoying uh, your afternoon in Tennessee. There's a group from Iceland who has been watching our, uh, our uh, live stream. And uh, wherever you are, I don't know where even to look, wherever you are, uh, we contact us and let us know. We'll be uh, thinking about you and praying for you. Um, it's a cool thing. It's an amazing thing what God does, you know, that, uh, that with this, this world in which we find ourselves, the spread of message, the spread of the gospel is so wide, so broad. It has such a different impact and so many ways to do so. Um, yeah, we live in fabulous times. A lot of things are still the same, though. A lot of things are still the same. Do you know no relationship that you have can survive without trust? No relationship that you have can survive without trust. We kind of talked about this last week. We, this is where we were. We were talking about the importance of you know, being yoked together with Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But that connection, that trust... Uh, you know, I used to have a dog named Sadie. She was part lab and part, uh, I don't remember what else she was. She was border collie. There we go. And so she had been born uh, at the runt of the litter and she wasn't breathing. And so the person who was helping the, mo- the, the mother dog have, the, ba- have the, the puppies grabbed her by the muzzle and breathed into her, her, into her nostrils until she started to breathe on her own. She had an absolute attachment to human beings. And if she could figure out what I was telling her to do, she would do it. So I, I, I started with her and on a, a leash. I actually had a real long leash as I was teaching her a name. And I would put her on this long leash and let her wander off. And then I would call her by her name. And when she didn't come, I'd start pulling on the leash. And I kept doing that until she realized, oh... When he says that, he wants me to come. She doesn't know what she had a name, but when she, he says that, he, he wants me to come. And then I, I would whistle at her, and I would call her back that way. And then the harder lesson, this is the, this is the part my wife hated about it, um, was when I would let her go, and I'd let her run off somewhere, and I'd call her back. And I'd let her get just far enough, like in the backyard where there was some parameters. She couldn't just run across the park that's behind our house. And I'd take a pebble and I'd throw it at her. Sometimes I'd hit her, sometimes I'd hit the ground next to her. But as soon as that pebble hit near or hit her, she went, oh, wait, what is that I hear? Oh, I better go back. And pretty soon she began to realize that she was to come back, that she was to be engaged. She was to stay connected to this voice, to this guy. And we walked every day. And we practiced every day. We stopped at every intersection. And I would say, stop, Sadie. Sit down, Sadie. And she would stop and she would sit down. To the point where when we came to an intersection, she would stop and sit down. And pretty soon I could take her anywhere without a leash because she just trusted me. And when she heard me ask her to do something, she did it. 
I tell you all of this because of what happened probably two or three years into this, er, this uh, relationship. I was very attached to this dog. And she to me. We had come, or we had taken our regular walk. Is probably, I don't know, a mile or two in the morning we would normally do. We had gone around the edges of our neighborhood and we were coming back. We were just coming onto our street. And as we turned onto our street, just two, three houses down and across the street, somebody's Rottweiler was out. And this Rottweiler was in this front yard. I'm assuming it was his front yard. Dogs are pretty territorial. And as we passed on the opposite side of the street, this Rottweiler started charging and barking and charging and barking. He would rush out of the, out of the driveway, barking and, and, you know, trying to start something. And then he would go back and then he'd rush out and do it again. He'd go back and he'd rush out and do it again. And this happened three or four times. And as, at the first or second time, I said, okay, Sadie, stop, lay down. And she just quietly laid down right beside me. And then, with her securely laying there, I stepped out in the street and I just started screaming at this dog. You know, I'm, I was a little scared myself. Extra adrenaline raises the, the pitch of your voice. And so I'm screaming like a third grade girl at this dog. Get out of here. Go home. And I just kept going. And finally, this Rottweiler was less interested in fighting with my dog and more concerned about this crazy person running out in the street and went back to his yard and kind of sat down like, I don't know what's happening here, but this guy's nuts. And I tell you the story because the dog was really the key. If she had stood up, growled, barked, lunged at him at all, it would have been war and she probably would have died. But because she trusted me, because of the relationship that had gone on, first she's being tugged in a direction she doesn't want to go. Then I'm actually plunking her with pebbles to keep her aware that I still, what I was trying to help her understand was I have contact with you even when you're not in contact with me. And I can keep you coming back. And eventually it stopped being you come back because I'm making you come back. Instead it became I come back because he wants something. I come back because there's a good reason for him to be calling me. He's not just calling me randomly. And then it became full trust where she could go anywhere without a leash. And then when the day came that we really needed her to trust me, she was trusting without question. Now, I hate to compare you to a lab, but this is our relationship with God. Brenda asked me when we were talking about this sermon, is that what's the contemporary picture of the yoke? Because we don't deal with yokes. We don't deal with this being yoked together thing. We don't, we don't have a lot of oxen in our backyard, but a lot of us have pets. And you know that if they trust you, if they truly trust you completely, that relationship is so much easier. When they're listening to you and able to communicate, you can go anywhere. Now they are free to roam. She's free to run because I know if something happens that changes while she's running and I yell stop, clear across the park she stops and sits down. If I yell come, she comes back. No matter what, she doesn't question it, she comes back. And so freedom is actually on the other end of faith. Freedom is actually on the other end of this learning to be yoked together. So we left this last week with Jesus being yoked together with us, walking down the furrow, right? And turning and forcing us to turn with him 
and taking us back to the other end of the furrow and pulling this plow and digging this dirt and creating all of this change in the earth, not because we have any strength, but because we are yoked together with the most powerful being in the universe. And we've slowly learned to walk in step with him. And we slowly learn the unforced rhythms of grace. We pick up the passage of Matthew chapter 11, moving into Matthew chapter 12 today. And I want to just start you with that picture. He closes after saying to these people, listen, you have seen so much Chorazin. You have seen so much Capernaum. You have seen so much and you still haven't repented. If you don't understand the word repent, you really mess this up. Because repent simply means stop going your way, turn and go my way. Repentance in a word is get into the yoke with me. Join yourself to me. And his comment to them is, if you will do this, come yoke yourself together with me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and learn from me. Note that it says, and learn from me and you will find rest for your soul. When the relationship arises at a point where you've begun to learn from me, you will find rest for your soul. We understand rest for the body, right? Too much rest for the body actually isn't that good for you. And he doesn't lift lift all of the burden. There's still a burden, but your burden is light. But your soul will find rest. And as we pick it up, it's Sabbath. It's interesting that in this Sabbath discussion, it ends with, you will find rest for your soul. And it begins the next, next chapter with, At the time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And the Pharisees saw, and they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, the day of rest. You will find rest for your souls. Wait, wait, wait. They're going through the grain fields, pulling off the grain, and they're eating it. This is wrong. They're breaking the Sabbath. They don't understand. They're not doing the right thing. They're not actually resting. You will find rest for your soul. But wait, they're picking heads of grain. You will find rest for your soul. Don't you guys understand? Don't you remember the story of David? He was in the temple. David walked into the temple, up to the bread of the presence, up to the showbread. He turned to the priest and he said, I want that and I'm eating it and so are all the men who are with me. Jesus said, David did that. Moses orders, don't eat this. Only the priest should eat this. David did that. If you understood what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have accused these innocent men. You wouldn't have. If you understood this one principle, the principle should be familiar to you. Just a few chapters back, in chapter 9, 
Jesus is in the house of Matthew Levi. And again, he tells them, if you would understand one principle, go and find out what it means. Go and find out what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you go back to the beginning of the story of Matthew... Matthew has this grand description of what it means to follow after Jesus. And in this grand description of what it means to follow after Jesus, right in the heart of it, he says, blessed are those who are merciful because they will receive mercy. In the midst of these beatitudes, in the midst of this radical change in the way you think about church and preachers and life, in the midst of Jesus' perspective, change. In the midst of Jesus saying, look, the way we do life here is different. The way we go about this is different. All the world thinks there's only one way to do life with God. And that is either you get your stuff together and make God what you do what you want. Or God tells you what to do so carefully that when you do it, he automatically does what you want. They're both just very small, very small differences in paganism. None of them, none of them are the true worship of God. You see, it's not about what clothes you have on. It's about how your walk with God shows up on the street. Jesus is as radical as a hippie in a tie-dye shirt. Because what he's saying is so different. He's coming to the world with a completely different plan. You see, by now the Pharisees have fully adopted the pagan plan. They would never think of it that way. But legalism is the pagan plan. The pagan plan is, I do the good things and God does what I want. It's the same thing as the virgin in the volcano. We throw the virgin in the volcano so the volcano God doesn't throw up on our island and kill us all. It's no different when you assume that by doing what you think is right, God changes his behavior. Think of who is in control then. Think of who is in charge in that relationship. If my decision to do or not do something changes the activity of God, I'm in charge of the relationship. Now I am, I am absolutely certain. My eyes are completely open on the fact that God has a lot of things in me he'd like to change. But the change is for my good, not his. The changes that God is challenging me with day to day, the yoke that we're being locked into with God is for me and for my good, not his. At the beginning of the relationship with my dog, she had no idea what I was doing. I was just tugging on her when I was saying this incomprehensible word. But eventually she began to relate the word and the voice to the relationship. And now it began to be 
the gateway to freedom to follow the word. You see, this is the deal. Jesus keeps saying to them, live a life of mercy. Live a life of mercy. If you will live a life of mercy, you won't find yourselves condemning some guys who are so hungry they're willing to eat raw grain. Come on. We told the farmers to not even, not even go and reap the edges of their farm in case somebody comes by who's hungry. And now just because it's Sabbath, you won't let them eat. You would rather they starved. You would rather they went hungry than do this simple task. Because you've defined it. Crazy, huh? Upside down thinking. He continues on this Sabbath. It's still Sabbath. And as he reaches sort of this commentary with them, talking about David, he says two things that just had to be just galling to them. He said, yeah, this whole thing with David happened in the holy place. It happened in the temple. But somebody greater than the temple is standing here talking to you. That had to be hard for them. How could this guy, this tie-dye wearing, long hair bearded hippie from Nazareth be greater than the temple? Then he goes into the synagogue. He walks from that point into the synagogue and behold, I love the word. Again, I told you before, we should be using behold a lot more. You should walk into the barber shop and go, Behold! The barber! And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then Matthew tells us it was a setup. They did it so that they might accuse him. So think about this deal. They find this poor guy who they want to use as a pawn to manipulate Jesus. And so they bring this poor guy with the withered hand to Jesus. We don't know how it was withered because the Bible says it was restored. So at some point it wasn't this way. So it was withered either from an accident. It was withered because of some disease. It was withered for some reason, but it's withered. His hand's not fully functional. And they bring this guy to Jesus. They, they push him to the front of the church. Can you imagine? You grab the guy from somebody back there. You push him up to the front. You find Jesus in the front of the church. And you go, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's exhibit A. Are you going to do anything about it? Come on. Come on. Jesus responds. What man among you? What man among you holy folks out there? What man among you uh, Pharisees who are going to challenge me today? What man among you who has one sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? You see, this guy with the withered hand, he's not dying from a withered hand. And the sheep that falls into a little hole but can't get out, he's not dying from that either. But Jesus says you would have more mercy on your sheep than you would have on this guy right 
Why should he suffer any longer if the answer is present? And Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the hand goes from withered and cupped and closed, unable to contain anything and very, very limited in its use. And he opens it. And now, with an open hand, he is more like Jesus than any other time in his life because you are never more like God than when your hand is open. Most of us spend our time grasping onto the things we want to hold, trying to keep things, trying to hold on to things, but you are never more like Jesus than when your hand is open. You are never more like God than when your hand is open. He says, stretch forth your hand. Open up your hand. Do you know what their response is? Nobody says, Nobody says, that's amazing, that's great, that's wonderful. Isn't it amazing what happened to this guy? Nobody even talks about the guy. This is the last we hear about the guy. It's just that he's a tool. He's not a person. Be careful of even doing your good acts to make you feel good because the other person becomes a tool for yourself. We have this phrase in our world. People say, I'm woke. Yep, they're awake, all right, but most of them are still in their bed. A whole bunch of woke people who haven't moved a muscle unless it's on TV or they can post it on their Instagram page or on their Facebook. Being woke doesn't help. Being engaged in mercy in the world where we live, now that makes a difference. It may be trendy to be woke, but it's Jesus to be merciful. It's Christ-like to be engaged to be concerned. When you run into someone who needs some help, that you help, that you put yourself out there in the hands of someone else to touch them and help them and bless them. To go around being a person who distributes mercy and grace in the world. What a, co- what a concept. Christians going around being mercy and grace in the world for no other reason than that they bumped into someone who had a need. How cool would that be? What would that do to the reputation of a church? The text goes on, and I'm not going to read the rest of that section of it. But the passage carries us down to another person. Jesus has to leave the synagogue because those guys, those Pharisees who brought this person to him, those guys have decided they're going to murder him. And they go off to plot his death. And Jesus has to leave. Isn't it sad? Jesus has to leave the church because the church is planning to kill Jesus. And so now out in the streets, he's got a multitude of people following. And on this Sabbath day, Jesus, the Bible says, heals them all. Everybody in the group that went with him. Everybody in the group that went with him. He heals them all. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus? Yeah, open up your hand. Y'all come with me. The whole crowd. And somebody says, Jesus is in a healing mood today, man. 
grab that guy and bring him. And they grab a guy who's blind and mute, and they bring him to Jesus. When he arrives there, the Bible says, and Jesus cast an evil spirit out of the man. And when the Pharisees heard it, apparently they didn't witness this, they just heard about it. Could you believe it? Jesus, yeah, Jesus, it was so amazing, so cool. He healed that guy, the, 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 the guy, that, that guy who was blind and, 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 and mute, that guy. Jesus healed that guy. He cast a demon out of him. And their response was, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see, sometimes, being in the hands of Jesus only gets you a slap in the face. But we still ought to be the hands of Jesus. Sometimes being in the hands of Jesus isn't good for your reputation. But we still should be the hands of Jesus. If you would learn what I mean when I say I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't be straying off into accusations of people who are completely innocent. If you would learn what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't be claiming that when I go and eat at Matthew Levi's house, that somehow I've broken the rules with God and that he's going to be mad at me. Because if you understood what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would begin to catch up with me in the unforced rhythms of grace. If you began to learn that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would find that when you read the text, it says that the place God sits enthroned in this world is the mercy seat. It is from the position of mercy that God operates. If you knew what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would understand when the temple falls apart and the sacrificial system is gone and the the veil is rent in two, you would understand that God is still intact without a temple. That we don't need sacrificial animals after the crucifixion. That all of that pointed to me. The mercy that God would provide in those lambs pointing forward to the day when the mercy would arrive on the planet. If you understood what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would understand that the only reason you're alive is because of my mercy. That it's new every morning, and with and because of that new mercy today, you were not consumed. Because if things were to go as they should go, you would be consumed. The text is simply saying God is holding back the destruction that would be normal. That he is standing in the gap between you and certain death. That Jesus' death was a preventative of your death. That God has always been standing there from the first sin of Satan. God stepped in between. God placed a veil of mercy so that there would not be the natural repercussions of sin in the presence of God. And that sin would be consumed. Moses, you can't actually see me. You can't actually look at me. You can't actually come into my presence. Because the day you do, you will die. Because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Our God is a consuming fire. What is the fuel? Sin. 
Because if you understood what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would understand that what motivates the actions that I'm taking today is mercy. What motivates the healing of a man with his hand scribbled up is mercy. There's no reason for this guy to have one more day of this suffering. The healing of a man possessed of a demon is motivated by mercy. My presence on this planet with you people is motivated by mercy. I desire that you learn mercy from me. Yoke yourselves together. Learn from me. Learn to trust me. Learn to walk in the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn to understand that when I turn, you turn. And when you turn, you're blessed. And when you follow in the track, when you repent and you yoke yourself, when you repent and you listen to my voice and you repent and you start to follow me, you will learn from me. And when you learn from me, all of the messed up things going on in your life will get better. All of the places where you're out of step will begin to get better. And as you learn from me and learn to walk with me and learn to in, in, involve yourself with me, when you engage yourself with me, your load will get lighter. You know how it gets lighter? Because I'm pulling for you. I desire mercy on the people around you. I desire mercy on your kids. I desire mercy for your spouse. I desire mercy for your relatives. I desire mercy for your church. I desire mercy for the guy down the street. I desire mercy for the people you love. I desire mercy for the people you hate. I desire mercy for the people on the opposite political party. I desire mercy for the people who are not of your gender. I desire mercy for the people that are not of your race. I desire mercy from you for everyone around you. Because that's what it means to live like Jesus. That's the kind of global upset of being a member of the kingdom. That's the crazy tie-dye shirt-wearing, long-haired, bearded, hippie behavior that I'm inviting you into. You're going to stick out and you're going to be weird. But you're going to be blessed. Because you will find out feels to be my follower and to be in alignment with my heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Blessed are those who are merciful because they will receive mercy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are not consumed. Thank you that from the very first sin, there was a plan for rescue. That you always intended to come and get your kids. That you always intended to open the doors of heaven. That you didn't play fast and loose and sneaky with anything. You, you went ahead and created this little blue dot, this family of broken, sinful people. 
full knowledge that you would be the one to come and rescue. Thank you that you are motivated by mercy. That you are defined by love. And that you can't imagine eternity without your children. Father, we choose to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the one who is merciful and just and humble who invites us today into that relationship. We choose a yoke that not anyone can break. We choose to learn to listen to your voice and choose what we hear. Choose to follow you until either we arrive at the day of our last breath or at the day of your final coming. To come up from the dirt or to look up into the sky, we want to follow you home. Lord, help us to choose mercy, not just right now tomorrow and the next and the next and the next day. To choose mercy when we don't feel like it. To choose mercy when we don't even want to have it. To not just be woke, but to get out of the stinking bed. 